Well, I have had an amazing time myself growing in the book of James as we have gone through it. We've entitled James, Authentic Christianity. This is what it looks like if you're the real deal. Just to review quickly, in chapter 1, James stated that testing and temptation are a regular part of the Christian life. You didn't get saved to move on to easy street. That's heaven. You got saved to be a soldier in the army of the Lord and to be on the front lines. He wants to equip you that one day you can stand for him. In chapter 1, we also saw there in verse 22 that he wants us to be not just a hearer of the word, but obedient. A lot of people know the right thing to do, but we read later, he that knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, that's sin. Faith is obedience to the word of God. Chapter 2, we saw what God thinks of partiality. God is not a man that, not as God a person that treats people differently according to how much money they have, what position they have. And that's something that we have to work on. That we don't look at people and see what kind of style they wear or where we think they come from and decide whether we want to talk to them or not. We're to love all of the brothers and sisters that are in Christ. No partiality with God. There we also saw that Faith without works is dead faith. You may say that you have a great doctrinal statement, but it is not flesh out. It's not rubber on the road. It's not you actually doing the word of God. Then that's, it's not good for anything. Now, some people say, well, hold it. I have faith. And, and James says, okay, well, you got faith. Show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead. In chapter 3, we saw how that words expose our heart. You may say you're a believer, but as soon as you're pressed, all this vile and bile comes out. Well, he said, can a fountain put out two kinds of water at the same time, bitter water and sweet? No. But it's our heart. You can't tame the tongue. It only does what the heart tells it to do. And our tongue and our language exposes what our heart's all about. Chapter 4, we looked at our battle. Our battlefield is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the toughest battle you're going to have is not with the world or the flesh. It's with, your, or with the world or with the devil. It's with your own flesh. When, you, when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you, then the world and the devil will take care of itself. But it tells us how to deal with it. We're to be humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. In chapter 5, in the first six verses, we saw a warning to the rich. And it's also a warning to us that are believers. That's the unsaved, the unbelieving rich. And there's application to our lives and believers because how we spend our money and what our treasure is tells a lot about our heart. And we come to the last few verses, last half of the chapter. We're going to start at verse 7 through the end of the chapter. And I've entitled it, Parting Principles for Victory. Trials are going to be a part of your life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life, you might have more abundantly, but in the world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. 
I've overcome the world. And I think this last advice, this is not everything about the Christian life he puts in these last few verses. Obviously, he wouldn't need to write the first uh, four chapters if he got it all in the last little bit. But it's that last part when you were first starting out on your journey your first journey in the car to go someplace, you had a good dad, he'd come out and he'd say, well, did you check the oil? Yeah, dad. Did you check the tires? Yeah, you got your map, you know, your GPS nowadays. Did, and he just, he's just helping you. Did you remember these things? And to me, this is like halftime. Your players on the field of contests have already met their opponents for a half. And you see what you're dealing with. You know what the battle's about. You see where weaknesses are. The coach does. And so when I was coaching for Coach Detai, at halftime, we would come into the locker room, all of us together, and Detai and his position coaches, we'd all get together in his office. And we would share what we were seeing, and he would give instruction about what he saw, and we'd give our input, and then we would separate and go to our different players. Now... In those days, we played Ironman football, so the line coach didn't have to talk to the defensive line and the offensive line. He just talked to the line because they went both ways. And the different position coaches, they'd go and they'd talk to their guys and say, now, hey, you're dealing with this. Here's how we can overcome that. This guy's getting by you. Here's how we can maybe double up on him. And so we would give them advice. Now, guys that had never played, they may not have even understood what was going on. And now it was just time for them to get another drink or kind of goof around and try not to get in the way. But for people on the field of battle, they were all ears because they wanted to win. And then at the very end, coach would gather us all together and he would give us the final principles. We're going to win. This game, even when we're behind, this game is not over yet. And here's what we're going to have to do. That's what James is doing. These last three principles for the Christian life. Number one, we've got to persevere. So much of the Christian life is just showing up. It's not quitting. How do you not quit? You don't quit. One more step, one more day. Paul said, Sometimes the battle's so strong, all you can do is just stand and not slide back. But then you stand. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. James's challenge to us is, If you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, your life rests in him, you've been born again, it's in your DNA, your spiritual DNA, to want to win. Because the greatest thing any human being can experience in all of eternity is to have Jesus say to you, well done. You fulfilled the purpose for which I saved you and gifted you on purpose. In case you think that suffering is just this other thing that happens to other believers or maybe when you're just wrong, 1 Peter 5.10, Paul said, or Peter wrote, after you have suffered for a while, the God of all grace who called you unto his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
Paul said in Romans 5, we glory in tribulation also because that's what God uses to expand our opportunity to love him, to be strong. In the first chapter, James wrote, let patience have her perfect work that you might be filled out, ready for whatever's coming. See, we don't know what's coming. God knows what he has planned for your life and the victories he's going to give you opportunity to be partaking in. And he wants to prepare you for that. He wants to equip you for every good work. Number one, James says, is perseverance. Perseverance is steadfastness in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. I remember Sammy told me about going through dive training in the, in the Navy and it was a tough, tough deal. But what he had learned from D-tie football is just show up the next day and you don't quit. And if you don't quit, eventually you get through. You persevere. You just don't quit. And the Christian life is not having all the answers. How many Christians think it's about getting a lot more knowledge and then you could be the big hammer to smack everybody around you? No, no, that's, that's not encouragement. In fact, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, we know that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If your desire is to get more knowledge to be better equipped so you can minister to others, now you're on to something. Verse 70 says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Number one, we persevere for maturity. It's just part of filling out, growing up, being strong. The farmer waits until the plant has the, 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 the time to get all the water, all the nutrition, all the sun it needs. You just don't go out, you know, when you're little and maybe your dad helped you plant some seeds you wanted to eat the next day, right? And it was so hard to wait. But if you were willing to wait, especially in a place that actually grows food, it was worth it. You pick it too soon and it's not ripe yet. It hasn't had an opportunity to develop God wants us to persevere so that you can become all that he has saved you to be. And you can't do it without endurance. The track coach over here knows long-distance runners don't get a chance to win races unless they've had the grace of discipline to practice and go through that pain barrier and endure in practice over and over and over again. Endurance, the ability to endure discomfort. And he said, if you're going to be strong as a soldier of Jesus Christ, if you're going to win, if you're going to run in such a way to win, that means there needs to be some buffeting go on. Paul said, I buffet my body and make it my slave. I'm going to endure. How do we do that? We read before that we do not have a high priest which cannot be sympathized with our weaknesses, but who one who is tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
We need grace for that, don't we? About the time you think you've run out of all your strength is the time you can say, Lord, I just can't do it on my own. So I'm just going to rest in you. Give me the grace not to quit. Give me the grace to live this day for you. Give me sensitivity to your spirit that I know which way to go. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. He said, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts. The coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. That's We talked about that last week. When things get tough, we begin to look around instead of looking up. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he was successful. He wrote the book on faith and how to finish this race. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he was set down at the right hand of the Father. Secondly, verse 10 and 11, we persevere for glory. Verse 10, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, you may be in a trial, and your first question, which you already talked about is wrong, is, Lord, why do I have to go through this trial? No. Paul said, no, we glory in the trial. Once an athlete gets to a place where he decides or she decides they want excellence, you don't have to drive them. You don't have to demand they go to the gym. They want to go to the gym. They want to go to practice because all of a sudden it's out there in front of them. That's why Paul said, we glory in the trial because we want more capacity for God, more capacity to love, more power to be able to serve, more experience to be able to be obedient. We persevere for glory. And of all the people that persevered, he said, think about the prophets. They were just doing God's will. They were speaking for God. And I don't care if you're talking about Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah or Daniel or John the Baptist. They spoke the word of God and then they suffered. Most of them have suffered persecution at the hands of their own countrymen who they were trying to prophesy for. But it's for glory. The next verse says this, we count those blessed who endured. We count those blessed who endured. Those people that fulfilled the opportunity that God gave them, we say, wow, that's somebody to follow. I want to be like him. There's a special fellowship among men who served in the Second World War. Not many left anymore. There's a special fellowship. They endured horrible things. But there's a certain joy when I would get together and listen to my uncles or other older men talk about that, and I wasn't a part of it. And we counted them blessed because they endured for us. young men and women that have served in the Mideast in recent years. There's a special fellowship. They may not have been there together, but when we hear that I was in Iraq, I was in Afghanistan, I served here, I served there, there's a special fellowship because they endured. They were there together. 
There's special blessings for those that endure even persecution and even death for the name of Jesus Christ. And we look back at those prophets and we, we wonder, how could people not listen to the truth they're trying to share? And I hope you, like I, look at those prophets and say, wow, God sent Isaiah out and he said, I want you to speak what I put in your mouth to speak and nobody's going to listen to you. That wouldn't go well in this seeker-sensitive, shake-and-bake American Christianity we have, would it? I want you to go speak the truth because as soon as, if he was of that mindset, Isaiah, he would say, Lord, we've got to change this. We've got to, make, we've got to be more seeker-sensitive here so people will receive your word. And yet God knew the hearts of his people, but he said, Isaiah, I want you to go speak the truth anyway. Just say what I said. That's our job. Every one of us as believers is not try to make the world more palatable or to try to make the word easier so people, or change it so people, maybe we'll get them started down the path and we'll give them the real truth later. No, that's a lie. Just speak the truth in love. We count those blessed who endure it. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. That's what you focus on there. J. Vernon McGee pointed out in my study that Job may have ended up patient, but he didn't start that way. Now, he was a wise man. Think of the wisest, hardest thing he did when he showed up and he didn't say anything, and his friends showed up. They were wise. They didn't say anything because as soon as they started talking, eventually God had to say, why don't you all be quiet? We had Pastor Davies here to speak on chapter 38 and 39 when Job finally had been filled up by all the criticism of his friends. And he said, I'll tell you what, if I could bring God into a courtroom, I got some questions for him. And then God showed up. And God had some questions for Job and his friends. At the end, Job said, I lay my hand on my mouth. I'm not going to talk anymore. But the end, and I don't know if Job even understood, even his life, with all the blessings God gave him, what we see in the trials that God just didn't wipe all of them out. But he was full of compassion. He was merciful. And he did share. And for all of us, what an amazing, omnipotent, and wise, amazing God that he is, even just in the book of Job. Peter wrote to his people in 1 Peter chapter 3, and he said, you can trust your soul to a faithful creator in doing what is right. You may not understand the trial. You may not even see the light at the end of the tunnel, but you can trust God today. You can trust him. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15, 4, the things that were written before in the Old Testament were written for our encouragement, that we can look and see that God is the same yesterday, yesterday today, and forever. And you may not understand everything. You know, our rebellious spirit says, well, I could make it if I could understand. No, you wouldn't. You might not think that's important, and yet God says, I want you to endure. I want you to be strong. I want you to be all that I have saved you to be. See, he's the coach. He's the one that brings the power. He's the one that gave the giftedness. He sees the end from the beginning, and he sees what he has for your life in particular. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God will 
the power will be of God and not from ourselves. God's not interested in people looking at you and going, wow, what great power you have. That's why sometimes the trial lasts long enough for you to get off yourself and be able to get to the place there's nothing else for you to but to just trust the Lord. He goes on and he says, we're afflicted in every way, we're not crushed, we're perplexed, but we're not despairing. We're persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And down in verse 17 of the same chapter, he says this, for momentary light affliction. He said, whoa. I mean, Paul had been left for dead after stoning. He'd been beaten numerous times, so much so that when he goes down to Corinth, he stops on the outside, and God sends an angel to Paul. And this is so encouraging to me, because sometimes you might get the, the, the idea that Paul, he got beat so much he didn't feel anymore. Go ahead, beat me. No, that wasn't Paul. God sent an angel to Paul to give him strength and encourage him. He said, listen, Paul, you go down there. Nobody's going to lay a finger on you this time. Paul needed that encouragement. But Paul calls it momentary light affliction. You may be in a trial, a heavy, dangerous, scary trial, and you say, well, I don't think it's momentary. From eternity, you'll realize how momentary it was. And as deep and heavy as the trial might be right now, from that perspective, you will say, that momentary light affliction cannot be compared to the eternal worth of glory. When God rewards you for your faithfulness, you'll say, wow, really? But I just did this, Lord. I didn't know anything else to do. I don't know about you, but I just feel like I'm in a cow shoot. And every once in a while I get a shot with the Holy Spirit from behind, I got to go forward. See, he set out the narrow path for us to be on. We don't have to figure that out. It's laid out here in Scripture. He doesn't want you figuring out for yourself he says, I've got the path. If we were to read a little further this morning in Psalm 84, it says, in the righteous man's heart is found the highways of wisdom. The pathways, isn't that something? That's why you want to hang around wise, faithful, righteous believers. Because on their, in their heart, you're going to find the pathways, the highways of life. He said, this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporal but the things that are not seen are eternal, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And then verse 13, excuse me, verse 12, perseverance for the truth. We're about just speaking the truth. Now, he has this verse, and it may be kind of hard to understand, but he says, above all, my brethren, don't swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now, what he's speaking to is a Jewish audience that had this tradition, and Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew 23, where they would make an oath, and they'd say, well, I... I I give you my promise based upon the temple. I swear by the tower. I swear by, you know how people say, I swear on my mother's grave. Well, your mother's grave, what's the penalty if you don't keep your word then? She's already dead, I guess. 
But they had this tradition, and Jesus confronted them. He said, I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great God. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes or no. Anything beyond that is evil. In verse chapter 23, he said, what do you blind guides? And they said, they, they swore by the temple. What, what, what that was was like you promising to do something and then crossing your fingers. And later they said, well, you said you do it. Sorry, I had my fingers crossed. They'd say, well, I swear by the altar of God that I will do this. But later when they didn't do it, they said, well, I'm sorry. Uh-huh, I just by the altar, so what'd you expect? And James is saying, as he heard from his older half-brother Jesus, if you're a believer and you say something, you keep your word. We're not to be political. We're not to be spinners of the truth. I mean, today, people can lie, bold-faced lie. They have it on tape, and they say, well, that was a long time ago. Well, did you lie? Well, and they will, it's amazing, especially politicians can think up a way to tell you how you're wrong about seeing them as liar. The Bible says believers are not to be known by that. If you don't keep your word or you can see that it's not going to happen, then you go with your hat in your hand and you say, you know, I said this was going to happen, but it's not. Psalm says it this way. In Psalm 15, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, he does not slander with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor. He doesn't take up a reproach against his friend and whose eyes are reprobate as despised. That's somebody that's always knowing how to work the system. They just slick. They're working this and they're working that and you never know what they're really doing. Their path is movable. We're not to be like that. He honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. You've heard that verse before, right? When you give your word, even if you're going to lose money, you do what you say you're going to do. Because what you're saying is, my, the, pro, the providence in my life, the, the, the blessing and the way God takes care of me is not simply dependent on me being a good salesman or a good businessman or good at my craft. God's my provider. And he may test you. If you've been in business, you're going to get tested. And it looks like the deal is going to go away and you can get all twisted up and start complaining against one another and blaming or you can just stop, get your eyes on the Lord and say, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do now? I am yours. You're the provider. I'm following you. You're my shepherd. You're the one that allows me to feed. You're the one that protects. What do we do now? The Bible says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. But as far as you're able, when you say something, you just say yes and no. You don't try to figure out a way to be slick and get out of the deals that you made. You stand for truth. Somebody may ask you a question in today's moral degradation, and they ask you a question, and you say, well, several big-time preachers Big ministries, they, they don't want anything hurt in their ministry. They've got to protect it. God made this ministry big, now I've got to keep it big. And I'll ask them on the stand, whether it's abortion or homosexuality or all the, the challenge that we have nowadays, and they'll say, well, our ministry's not about that. That's not a big deal for our ministry. And so later they can say to the Christian, wow, I've I, I I got to find some answers so that people can't attack me. 
said, no, no, you let the truth be the truth. You stand with God. If God's word said it, you don't have to explain it. You don't have to defend it like J. Vernon McGee used to say. The truth is like a lion. You don't have to protect it. Just let it off its chain. Speak the truth. The second principle for victory that James wants to emphasize before he signs off, he says prayer has to be a part of your life. Paul said praying without ceasing. Paul said in Ephesians 6.18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. First of all, verse 13, praying when we're suffering. Anyone suffering? then he must pray. It's very simple, isn't it? I love James. He's just to the point. When we suffer, whether it's because of somebody's gossip or because we're hurting or whatever the situation is, we tend to think we tell a lot of people that'll make a difference. If we complain and get a lot of people on our side, then maybe this suffering will stop over there. And I think it's important, I'm going to say in a minute, it's important to share those requests as you're suffering with those people that are close to you. They can pray also. But the main place you need to take it to is the Lord. You know, when you're suffering, sometimes we have those other ways our flesh takes us, and then all of a sudden we have this great idea. Hold it. I think this is a trial. This must be a trial. Half the time, we've already blown it with our words or our attitudes, and then we stop, and the Holy Spirit stops. We go, okay, hold it. Lord, this is a trial, so let me talk to you a little bit about this, right? Hopefully, as we grow, that gets to be our first place we go. If you're suffering, you need to pray. Then he says, if somebody cheerful, they should sing. Now, I can't remember if it was J. Vernon McGee or, or Warren Wiersbe said, they remember going to church services, and this in the old days, we'd have a guy doing this up here in front, leading, you know. And he'd say, all right, I want everybody to sit up, and I want you to smile for Jesus, right? And so you'd have to get happy. But you know what? Some people are coming in with a heavy heart. And it will be wrong for them to act like everything's okay when it's not okay. Joy isn't being happy, happy, happy all the time. Joy is that abiding peace that even in the depths of this trial, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. It's not just happy all the time. And if we're going to minister to people in all areas of their life, we want them to come and ask for prayer. And I tell people, because they'll come and say, Pastor, would you pray for me? And I say, I'd love to pray for you. Or sometimes they'll come and they'll say, hey, I want you to be praying for me. And I'll say, well, let's pray right now. And then I'll tell them after we pray. Now, listen, you tell me when the Lord has given you an answer because I want a party. You see, prayer and suffering and singing and rejoicing are partners. Sorrow might last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. They go together, but it starts with prayer. So praying when we're suffering, verses 14 and 15. Praying when we're sick. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church. Now notice, you've got to call. The elders not going around finding somebody who's sick and pray over them. You have to ask. And I'll tell you something. It's a matter of your obedience if you do this. 
we have this reaction as humans, well, if I don't tell anybody, it won't be real. Just like politicians, it's not a lie if they believe it, right? Well, the opposite, you know, if I don't tell anybody my, my problem, it won't be real. No, it's real anyway. Like if nobody finds out, you won't be sick? No, you'll still be sick. And the, and the passage is teaching here, call for the elders, they're going to anoint you with oil, and they're going to pray for you. Now, the word for anoint here is just rub with oil. So they didn't have a lot of medicine in those days, and so it could be that the elders, knowing what they did about medicine, just rubbed these people down with oil, gave them a massage. John MacArthur says, the example here, the oil just represents metaphorically defeated believers conveying the responsibility for elders to stimulate, encourage, strengthen, and refresh. See, this isn't a magic little potion you do, put all on, everybody gets healed. And at best, every healing is temporary, right? Because unless the Lord comes back and we're raptured, we're all going to die, but then we'll be with the Lord. Now, when you die, you will be healed. But the responsibility, if, if we've seen people healed, healed here. We don't heal them. The elders don't heal them. God heals people. But when you're coming to the elders, you're coming to find out. You're saying, okay, maybe there is sin. Just because you're sick doesn't mean you've sinned. Sometimes it's just a trial. But you're coming to the elders and saying, brothers, would you share with me in this? Maybe God give you some wisdom, some direction. And it says the prayer of faith, if the sickness was because of sin and there's confession, then naturally there'll be a healing. But I've also seen us lay hands on people that went to be with the Lord. You say, well, it failed. No, it didn't. They went to be with the Lord in joy and glory. And God gave them supernatural peace for that test that he'd given them there. That's God's grace. So we're coming and we're calling the elders together for wisdom. Inevitably, we don't have a little, you know, elder uh, uh, program we go through. Okay, now, you ask them if they're sinning in their life. You ask them what they've done, where they're going. No, we don't do that. We just come together and pray. But inevitably, because the Bible says if there's sin, it will be forgiven them, somebody will say in the prayer, Lord, if there's sin, if there's a hidden thing that you're trying to bring out, you show it to our brother. You show it to our sister so he can deal with that. And, Lord, we pray that you grant them repentance, but we always say, Lord, you're the great physician. You're the healer. Give the doctors wisdom. But, Lord, you heal them. It's just the faithful thing to do. Just get overwhelmed. So I don't know what to do. Call for the elders. Let them pray. Let them speak into your life. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who's sick. And there's not necessarily talking just about the health. It's talking about spiritual restoration. Because even if God doesn't heal you, to you for, for you to be restored spiritually, you're going to be able to handle the trial with a whole lot different attitude with your eyes on Jesus than if your eyes are just on this, the, the, the problem with your health. The prayer of faith will restore. That's where elders are for, to lead and to feed and to strengthen. In verses 17 and 18, 
prayer for powerful ministry. Now, I skipped over 16. We're going to come back to that. We've all heard prayer changes things. If we could just get a whole bunch of people praying, and that'd be like, you know, when I was in junior high, getting a whole bunch of friends to go and ask my mom for something. I remember when my dad was getting ready to move to Rockville, Illinois to be a pastor, and my friend Rex Johnson over in Wheatland, he and I did not agree about that decision. That was not a good decision. So Rex took it upon himself to get an appointment with my dad, go talk to my dad and say, listen, I... And we, Rex and I already agreed about this. I think you should leave Paul here and he can stay at my place. And I was all for that. My dad smiled and said, no, Paul will be moving with the rest of us. We think, well, if we get a whole bunch of people asking God, then God will just by the, the force of our prayer. Let me tell you something. The prayer of man is not what moves the heart of God to, to change his mind Man praying changed man's mind to get on God's page. So we know what God is doing. We can follow him there. Now, if you're saying, well, that's what I meant. Okay, I agree with you. That it changes my heart, so I get tender to what God is doing, and I ask God for his wisdom. But God is not in a confusion trying to figure out what to do, and he just needs a whole bunch of us to pray so we can figure it out. In that model, prayer doesn't change anything. But God listens to his children, and he changes our heart. One example, he said, I want you to pray for your enemies. You say, well, what? That seems opposite. You know what happens when you begin to pray for people? God begins to give you a heart for them, even when they're your enemy. God knows. So we say here, verse 17 18, we want to pray for powerful ministry. We see powerful ministry, we want to be a part of it. And we want our life to count. We don't want to waste our life. So, Lord, give me, give me, I just want to see your power. I want to see you work. But sometimes we kind of assign that to individuals. Well, they're a very powerful person. And the guy that he uses the example is Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured forth rain, and the earth produces fruit. See, pastor, there it is. Well, if you dig back a little further in the Old Testament, the actual story in 1 Kings 17, we see that Elijah was just doing what God told him to do. And often, doing what God told him to do, these prophets would put themselves in a position, God just have to show up in supernatural power and deliver them but they were just doing what God told them to do. Now, Ahab was the king of Israel. They'd separated from Judah. Judah was in the north. Ahab was, or I mean, Israel was in the north. Judah was in the south. And Ahab married a wicked woman. And he allowed her, because he was weak, to bring her false religion of Baal in and Ashtaroth in. And so she was going around killing all the prophets of God because they didn't make people feel good. They didn't like what the prophet of God was saying. In fact, even Ahab's son, when he found out there's a prophet, he said, is he a hairy man? I don't like him. He's always prophesying against me, right? So God tells Elijah, I want you to go down. Here's Ahab coming down. I want you to stand up and you tell Ahab it's not going to rain. And Ahab, being the unbeliever that he was, blamed Elijah. Like Elijah could stop rain, right? 
And him and his wife began to think, if we could just find Elijah and kill him, it'd start raining again. So Elijah shows up. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, there's not going to be any rain. Verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to him saying, now you get out of here. To Elijah, you go hide by the brook Cherith. I'm going to take care of you. Later, he said, okay, that's going to dry up. And he thought, okay, now I'm dead. He said, no, no, no. I got a widow, not even of Israel. She's going to take care of you. Remember that story? Here's this widow out there picking sticks, and here comes the, the prophet of God. And the prophet of God rudely says, hey, make me something to eat. Because that's what God told him to do. And she said, well, let me tell you the situation. There's enough meal and oil for me to make one meal for my son. I'm gathering six to, to bake this, and then we're going to die. He said, well, God says make it for me first. See, sometimes when God speaks, it sounds rude. But she did that. And you know what? The grain never went away, and the barrel of oil never wasted away. It was there through the whole famine because she was obedient. That's how God works. He's got to show up and save us if we're just going to be obedient. So he's off there by himself, and it hasn't rained for two and a half years, and they're looking everywhere to kill Elijah. Now, there's a fellow on the inside that works for Ahab, and he's a godly man. His name's Obadiah. God put him there on purpose. So one day, Elijah shows up, and he says, Obadiah. And Obadiah goes, oh, man, what are you doing here? The king finds out, I saw you because they're looking every four, and I didn't kill you. They're going to kill me. You go tell the king. And they have this little argument. Obadiah says, no, no, I, no, you go tell the king. I'm not going to the king by myself. And he said, Obadiah, just simmer down. I'm going up to Mount Carmel. Tell Ahab he can find me there. You'll be fine. Okay. God wanted to turn the hearts of his people back to him, so they're going to have a big contest. You remember what happened? Get up on Mount Carmel. All, a lot of people from Israel hear about this contest. They want to see what's happening. All the prophets of Baal show up. And he says, put a, here's the challenge. You put a sacrifice up there, and you pray to Baal and tell him to come down and consume this with fire. Oh, the prophets of Baal, they were focused all day long. They prayed and they cried. Nothing happened. Pretty soon they began to cut themselves. And then Elijah began to get a little bit facetious. And he'd say, well, you know, maybe uh, Baal's going to the bathroom. You better, you know, go on a side somewhere. You better holler louder. Well, maybe he's sleeping. As the sun began to go down, he says, all right, enough from you guys. You sit down. He says, give me 12 stones, and he takes 12 stones, and he makes a ditch around the 12 stones, and he kills the sacrifice and put the sacrifice up there. He says, now I want to get barrels of water, pour over this sacrifice. I don't want anybody thinking that something spontaneous happened except for the supernatural power of God. And they poured all the water, and the water doused the sacrifice and filled up the trough all the way around the altar. And then he prayed this simple prayer. O oh Lord, the God of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God, you are the God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things according to your word. He was not on his own. He didn't say, hey, God, I know. Why don't I pray to stop the rain and you just sign here? No, that's not how it works. We pray, we get on God's page, we do what God tells us to, even though it doesn't seem like it's even possible. Simple prayer. Let them know that you're the one that's done this. 
Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Was it about him being a powerful preacher? He said, God, you answer. And how did God answer? Fire came down from heaven. It consumed the sacrifice. It consumed all the water and it consumed the rocks. And Elijah took a sword and killed all the prophets of Baal. And then supernaturally, he ran in front of Ahab's chariot. He, he went and prayed. And then he says, uh, Ahab, you better get out of here because it's about to rain. And it started raining. God saved him. He just did what God told him to do. You want powerful ministry? You want to be involved in what God is doing? Get on God's page. Don't try to think up big ideas for God because they cannot compare to what God wants to use your life for the impact he wants to have with your little life. You say, well, I'm so insignificant. That's who God loves to use. He loves to use the foolish to confound the wise. He loves to use the weak to confound them that are mighty. Those that are not to bring the not those that are that no flesh would glory in his sight. God gets all the glory. Lastly, the part that he wants us to know. He wants us to be persevering. That's just part of the Christian life. We persevere. The righteous man falls down and he just keeps getting back up. Secondly, we're in prayer because we need to know where the shepherd's leading us. It's part of our life. It's just like breathing. And thirdly, personal accountability. Perseverance, prayer, and personal accountability that we are accountable and responsible for one another. Verse 16, he says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You Pharisees, they compare themselves and they cover up and they excuse themselves, but we're saved not by our righteousness, by, the, by Christ's righteousness, so we can be transparent. And I'm telling you today, if this is the whole of your Christian life, that, you know, coming to church, this is the, all the fellowship you get, you're missing out on the joy. You're missing out on the strength. You're missing out on growth. And I'm not saying because I appreciate the fact that we have such wonderful fellowship. Many of you will stay here for an hour after we say amen and leave. That's, that's the mark of a healthy church. And I'm not saying that you need to get up here and be transparent in front of all 300 people that are here, okay? I don't think that's even healthy. Now, when we first started having small groups, I thought since girls like to talk more, it'd be early or easier for girls to be transparent, but that's because I'm not a girl, and I understand girls. I'm still trying to figure out my girl out. And it's a wonderful mystery. But Christy said, you know, Paul, girls are going to have a hard time with this. I said, Really? But they like talking so much. Yeah, but they're not going to get transparent because they know what their sisters might do with that. And first thing you know, everybody's going to know. That's like when prayer requests become legal gossip. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking about people that you can rest in. You can trust them. And that's a smaller group. Now, as God grows you, pretty soon you realize you can just be transparent. It doesn't matter. It's Christ's right. It's not yours. But it may start small, but you need that small fellowship that you can confess your faults 
to one another. You can be transparent. What the Bible says, we need one another. We need that life on life, that fellowship, that small group accountability so we can grow. We can be healed. Not only are we accountable for one another, but we're also accountable for the loss that God puts in our life. We can't save them, but we're responsible to share the truth and live out the love of Christ before them, the lost. Verse 19 and 20, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one of them turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, James knew he was teaching and a lot of people reading this letter was from a mixed multitude. They've been kind of going along. They like kind of maybe the fellowship, but they hadn't committed their life to Christ. And there may come a time when they decided, mm, too tough, I'm going to leave. Never being saved, having been even a part of the church, had just gone away. Jesus dealt with that when he talked about the sower and the seed, about some Times a seed gets sown by the roadside. The bird comes along and pick up that seed and that person never thinks again about the gospel. And then some falls among the thorns and it begins to grow, but then the thorns choke out the life. Some falls among the stony ground. At first it begins to grow out, but then it says by and by the sun comes out and Jesus, when he explained, he said they're offended by the word. He said, well, if that's the way it is, I'm out of here and they leave. Jesus said that to, to show you that not everybody that even makes a decision is going to heaven because God knows hearts. We don't. And John explained it in his epistle in 1 John. He said, they went out from us because they were not part of us. If they were part of us, they no doubt would have continued with us, but they went out because they were not. But when they go out, what's your attitude about them? Well, good riddance there. Less response, no, that's not what he said. You need to understand something. We have an opportunity to share the gospel with people. We can't know hearts. God knows hearts. But we can pray and we can speak. And he said, if someone strays from the truth and you turn him back, you may have saved them from death. If they turn back, that's God's business. Years ago, I remember, first time I ever anointed somebody with oil and prayed over. The girl was sick in our church. She was a young woman, a mom. And uh, she called for the elders, and I called another pastor. I said, I've never done this before, but I see it in the Bible. So he, I think it was Pastor Dave Garrett, he gave me some wisdom. And so we went over there, and we just prayed. And this girl was gravely ill. And it was the strangest thing because I'm not big on feelings, but I had a confidence that day. God was going to heal her, and you know what? He did. Got her some medicine that we didn't even know existed, and he healed her, and I, I was just praising the Lord, but you know what? When God heals you, you have an even more, a, a larger responsibility to say, okay, now what's this for? You know what she did? She divorced her husband, got remarried, and I think before she was 40, she was dead. Lynn just told me this morning, the young man that Charlie was ministering to, we had him here, we prayed with him, we ministered to him, we opened our hearts to him. Charlie poured out his life for him. But he took that, and he said, I don't need that. He's dead now. 
James says, listen, you're, you're dealing with serious eternal matters here. Jesus Christ is the only hope. Don't buy into the worldly wisdom that, well, as long as they're sincere in something. No, no. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So we will give an account for the deeds that we've done in the body according to what we have done, whether good or bad. And then he says this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing the judgment that waiting for people that don't receive Christ, we persuade them. And he ends the chapter this way, No, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry, every believer, the ministry of reconciliation. What is that ministry? Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, you can't save anybody, but you can surely make an appeal for the gospel. You can at least set the record straight. Listen, Jesus said there's not five ways. There's only one way. He's the only way. He's the only way. And they might say, but you don't know how much I've sinned. And we can say, but you don't know the value of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's more powerful than all your sin. It's grace that is greater than all your sin. You might save that person from death. That's our opportunity. That's our responsibility to persevere, to be in prayer that we are confident that we're following the Lord and to have a responsibility for one another and for the loss that God puts in our life, to just warn them to live a life of the love of Christ before them. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for James. Lord, he is so clear in his message, and we know that it comes from you. We know that James probably was thinking of you, Lord Jesus, whenever he was bringing this wisdom. And Lord, he finished well. Well, we hear that they called James camel knees because he spent his life in prayer. Lord Jesus, stir us. Stir in us that desire to win. Give us the grace to persevere, to be found faithful in our time, in our place. And Lord, I pray, give us opportunity. Give everyone in this room opportunity to see a soul turn back from death. Lord, that is the greatest joy I think we can know on earth. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in this body. Lord, we are amazed with the things that you're doing and we want to give you all the glory in Jesus' name, amen.